Hello and welcome to Cooking the Books with me, Jilly Smith, the podcast which takes us just a little deeper behind the pages of the best of the food books. This week, I'm with one of the most important voices in food right now, sheep farmer and award-winning author James Rebanks. His books, The Shepherd's Life and English Pastoral, beautifully and powerfully remind us of the connection between what we eat and where it comes from, and the relationship between humans, nature and climate change in a way that will make you punch the sky and cry your heart out. I did both. It's propelled him into a limelight he doesn't much bother with, despite Henry Dimbleby name-checking him often as he delivers his national food strategy. The appearances on Desert Island Discs, the Fortnum and Mason Food Book of the Year Award for English Pastoral, it's all a long way from following his granddad around the farm as a lad. It is, but we're all multiple things at once, let's be honest. I'm sure you are, I definitely am. And 95% of my waking hours is being a farmer uh, and all that other stuff yeah, you can. we can list it, and it all sounds like maybe I do nothing else but prat about and talk to people these days. But to be honest, I've just rushed up the lane because I've been selling some sheep to a, a 15-year-old shepherd, and I've just before that I spent two hours bringing some sheep down a lane. So 90, 95% of my daylight hours working on the farm, I probably spend most of the other 5% trying to go into an office to to write, which is another kind of working, and then... Um, yeah, I do, I do some talking to other people, but uh, I try to keep it as, li- as minimal as possible. Well, the reason that everybody wants to talk to you is because you are a great communicator and you are communicating some of the most important issues facing all of us. You've kind of nailed it in many ways. The you know, as, as we're talking about food poverty, we're talking about poverty of the land, we're talking about soil infertility, we're talking about climate change. It's the whole kit and caboodle, isn't it? Why do you think that you're so able to communicate it? in a way that the millions of other farmers haven't tried or bothered or broken through? Um, Okay, that's a a good question. Do you want to know something really funny? For all the time when I was a young man, I think young men, certainly, I should speak about me really, not young men in general. I think I was desperate for a purpose when I was young and I didn't really have a purpose and I was desperate for a voice. I didn't really have a voice. And um, yeah, and and I felt like, I wanted to do something of some some significance, but I didn't know what that was. And it seemed, and it took quite a long time for me to realise that the thing of significance that I knew about was right under my nose. It was literally what I'd grown up with, what my dad was, what my dad, what my granddad had done, the way we managed our fields. And I feel like it was so obviously under my nose that it's, I'm now amazed I couldn't see it through my like teens and 20s. Um, because I think our culture... Certainly until very recently, our culture tells us that, I don't know, being into music's cool or being urban's cool or fashion's cool. You know, it, it never says, oh, maybe food's, maybe food's really important. Maybe farming's really important. Maybe there's all these people out there doing that that we just like, never hear from. So I think, I think that's part of it. I do believe absolutely passionately of, that food and farming are for every single one of us should be like core curriculum, core things to think about every day. Yeah. And then I think the other thing that's maybe a little, I'm a little weird, is um, that life life took me off the farm a little bit, took me to other places, took me into other conversations. And I didn't really want to do some of that stuff, but it probably did me the world of good because I, I, like, I worked, okay, only for a few weeks, but I worked in inner city London for a few weeks um, we couldn't afford a nice house when we moved. Well, I couldn't afford a, a nice rural house when we were young, so we lived in Carlisle in the in the city there. And I think when I look back now, as a hopefully grown up man, 
I think actually all those things that were uncomfortable that were slightly not in my myself script. They've helped me to realize how other people live. They've helped me to learn to not be so judgmental in a negative way about other people and, and to realize that actually when 1% of the population is producing all the food and managing all the land, they're in big trouble if they're not talking to the other 99%. They're in big trouble if the other 99% don't know what's going on. And yeah, and, and a really simple thing that, to finish that off is I love books and writing. Yeah. I, I think books and writing are the coolest thing you can do with your time. So to be able to do that about the people that I love and the place that I love and for anyone else to be interested is just a huge privilege. Well, exactly. And it's a hell of a story. It's an amazing time to tell this story and it's hugely important. I mean, actually, before you discovered books and writing, your granddad was a storyteller, wasn't he? And you were entranced mm. by his stories. Very simple, but very profound. And he mm. told you, as you followed him around the farm, what was going on. So that power of storytelling was down to your granddad wasn't he yeah he was he was a i mean a lot a lot of rural stroke working class people urban or rural i think are amazing storytellers like like what do they do down the pub they get a pint and then they're making each other laugh and they're telling stories about their dads and their mums and yeah i think a lot of working people whether they're urban or rural are amazing storytellers they're very proud of their culture they're they're absolutely living the things they care about and and I was very lucky to be from the rural version of that. And yeah, there's sort of two things I think were huge, huge gifts to me, really. One was a sense that stories mattered. My granddad, my granddad was the kind of guy that could tell a story in the pub and everybody would be giggling or, or listening to it. And he'd look at that and think, that's, that's quite cool. Um, so I wasn't scared of telling stories. When I, when I was uh, in my late teens and I started to read novels and things, it was immediately apparent to me that that wasn't a million miles away from what I'd grown up with, uh, that, that my family might be a story too. That, that, that hit me when I was 15 or 16 years old and I started to read great novels. And, and, and the other thing was a sense of pride. So I, th I think a lot of people who we don't really hear the stories of, they're, they're in the background of modern life, if you like, but I still think there's an often an enormous pride in what they, their culture is and what their way of life is. And I'm definitely from a, a, a subculture like that, a rural subculture, where um, my granddad was like incredibly proud of what he was. He wasn't just telling me how the farm worked. He was, he was sort of telling me, this is the most important job in the world, son. And, yeah. and that was intoxicating when you were eight or nine years old. I was like, yeah, he's, yeah, what could be more important than this? He looks after a piece of land. He knows how to behave around a bull he knows how to he knows everybody that in my whole universe knows him yeah it's very cool i mean actually that's it's, that's yeah. i mean most people resonate with stories <laughs> when it's really cool and you're right to talk about it as a subculture you know when we talk about subcultures we're thinking about punks and mods and rockers and you know emos and all that kind of stuff it's a it's a minority it's a way of life but you're grandfather was able to to really tell that story and 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 yeah. make it the most important thing in your young life that's that's right and he um like the thing that was hardest for me was i i went from that at maybe eight or nine or ten years old to going to quite a sort of urban secondary school and both the kids and the school seemed to be trying to tell me every day that what i was was embarrassing or small or not that significant and like the whole culture, that was, what is that? That's like the second half of the 1980s, heading towards 1990. Um, it's a very urban culture that we grew, we grew up in. And I, I couldn't, 
I couldn't work out how to handle that. Did, was I supposed to pretend that I was more urban and cool and sort of turn my back on my granddad or, or was everybody else wrong? <laughs> In which case, there's a story to tell there. <laughs> and of course, you know, there's been a million movies about that, haven't there? You know, that discomfort yeah. of the child who doesn't, who's trying to put on a suit that doesn't fit and actually really knows that the skin underneath is the skin that he really wants to live in. And that's, that's what propels you to to tell that story but it's set against this sweeping story across the world you know let's give it a bit of context which obviously you didn't find out until much later we were talking about the great change in modern farming uh earl butts who was appointed by nixon said get big or get out uh it was about mass factory farming it was set against the very quiet gentle rural environment that was still happening in british farms and, you know, your environment, your farming neighbours were watching this going on and seeing a lot of people making money. Tell us about that earliest moment when you realised that actually your quite poor world was set against uh, modernisation that could mean your family being seen as a bit of a relic. Yeah. So I, I think the thing that became clearer and clearer to me throughout my boyhood and then teenage years was, was this basic reality that we lived at 900 feet above sea level. It's, it's quite a tough old farm. It's rented from some other people. We don't own it. And probably eight or nine years old, I know that we've got old tractors on our farm and they're small and that my cousin down the hill on a big farm has big tractors and big acres and big numbers of cows. And you didn't have to be Einstein to see that. Literally, you'd drive 10, 15 miles down the hill to the nearest town. And, and the future had happened there. It had happened in the preceding 15 years. And it was trying to come to our house. I, I, there was a very strong sense of that. I, certainly when I was young, I thought maybe my dad didn't understand what was happening. I think he was just confused what we would do about it. Like, what do you do if you're on the wrong side of this? It's, I suppose... Uh, it's, it's a little bit like comparable to being to growing up in maybe a mining family in the 1980s. You you're being told it doesn't matter anymore. You're told you're the the tail end of something that's disappearing, and yet it feels like it's your whole world. So, what does that mean? And I all, all I mean I, I wasn't Einstein as a kid. I I I, I just looked at it. And I thought, oh, my dad can't see the truth here. We're, we're screwed. By the time I got into my teens, I was like, oh wow, we're we're in big trouble. That's obviously the future. That's obviously good. Otherwise, all these adults wouldn't be doing it. Um, it's coming from America. America's the future, right? This makes people richer. It makes food cheaper. It makes food more abundant. Everybody likes supermarkets because they come back with chocolate biscuits and jam donuts and everything else you could possibly want. Um, so people like my grandmother that were still baking everything, making everything themselves in the kitchen and trying to eat these sort of old-fashioned diets, suddenly that looked silly. It looked old-fashioned and archaic. So I can remember, like, the first time my, my, we ever had pizza in my house. Like, I'm only 46 years old, so any kids listening to this will think I'm a dinosaur. But <laughs> it would probably be maybe 1990 was the first time we had, like, a takeaway pizza in my family. And my grandmother was outraged by this. Like, the idea that we'd be eating, like, foreign, uh, some sort of foreign weird food when we could be having like a proper English stew and her own bacon and cakes and things. So she, she tried to subvert the whole thing. She bought shortbread and other things that she thought she could persuade us to eat. And we're stuffing our face with this doughy bought, bought pizza. And, and I could choose to sort of confused and horrified by this. Why is everybody changing? Why are they eating this new stuff? 
And of course, looking back now, you realise that my grandmother was feeding us amazing food and the pizza is going to make us all fat and obese and unhealthy. <laughs> yeah, and it's, and it's a metaphor for so much, isn't it? You know, it's so much that's gone wrong with the world. It, you know, I work on the Right to Food podcast for the Food Foundation and I interviewed teenage ambassadors fairly recently to talk about what British food looks like. And they came from all sorts of different environments. They couldn't tell me what British food looked like. They just didn't have the picture on the front of the jigsaw. They're told about all the components, the proteins, the carbohydrates, the the goodness yeah. that they're supposed to put in their bodies, but they don't know what it looks like. They haven't got any no. relationship with British food culture as it was. I mean, not to say that, you know, we don't want it to evolve. I grew up eating stew and mince all the time. Um, I, I now think, thanks, mum and dad, for feeding me good, good, wholesome food. But I didn't think that when I was 10. No. Um, I was sick. I was sick of it. That 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 diet was perhaps a little monotonous. The meat was probably overcooked. Uh, there were way too many meals with gravy. Yeah, there are plenty <laughs> of ways potatoes. to cook it better. When you talk about modernisation and you're talking about the economics of it, in your first food moment, you talk about the Sisyphus factor. You know, you were being told to get rid of the hedgerows, to widen the gates, to make life easier. Yet your granddad really didn't want that. And you call him the Sisyphus with a smile using the metaphor of the Greek god who was punished by having to constantly roll the, the, the boulder up the hill only for it to roll all the way down again. Life was hard, but he chose that over what he saw would happen to the loss of those hedgerows, the loss of the habitats, loss of wildlife. Uh, he didn't talk about climate change, obviously, but he, he could see that this was a problem, didn't he? Yeah, so he's... Um and it's not because he's a saint or the wisest man in the history of the world. It's, it's just he and my dad did actually. My dad did until he died six years ago. They, I'm pretty sure that they viewed work as uh, work, is what, work was what gave your life meaning. It wasn't something the sort of post-war American dream is that work is a sort of necessary thing that you would minimize to the greatest extent possible, replace with leisure wherever possible and work with something to free yourself from because it's yes. a nasty thing from the past. That I was amazed to discover that later on because I'd grown up in this sort of, as you say, subculture with my dad and my granddad and my mum and grandma where work was sort of circular and it gave your life meaning. You didn't expect it to ever finish. You always thought it would come around with each season and each year. And actually the doing of it was what made you of significance. So the shepherding work, you wouldn't have dreamt of saying, I can half the shepherding work and have half the year off because all of the meaning in your life came from the work. And what was interesting to me is I came across the sort of mainstream British culture when I went to secondary school for the, and suddenly I was surrounded by teachers and others who were trying to persuade me that I should get out of this archaic work-obsessed world that they thought was sort of grubby and mindless and I should get into a world where you'd have nine to five and weekends off but I couldn't see any meaning in that. I'm not saying it is meaningless. I think there's lots of ways to make your life meaning. But uh, as a 13-year-old or 14-year-old, I just couldn't understand why they didn't know about the meaning in my granddad's life. It's the classic and, Marxist alienation. You know, if there's no <laughs> purpose to what you're doing, you're living on a hamster wheel, aren't you, really? <laughs> the other thing was, and my dad believed this very strongly, was the less that you needed to buy, the sort of the more free you were. Like... Yeah, yeah, if he goes and does a job he doesn't want to do, he can earn th twice as much money. But he'd end up spending that money on a car to go there. He'd, spend, he'd have to buy the clothes to go to that place. He'd, he'd be in this sort of... He could see there was a sort of rat race that he didn't want to be part of. He, he liked the world he was from 
And the meaning that came from it. And there is a question about that meaning. When your grandfather is becoming an anachronism, um, you do have to look at the modern ways and you have to come to some kind of compromise. And we'll go there uh, in in one of your food moments later. But let's talk about Rachel Carson in your second food moment. You were very moved by Rachel Carson, who wrote back in the 1960s. She was very prophetic about what would happen if we used pesticides on the soil. And pesticides are a huge part of your argument. You know, they they have robbed the soil of its natural nutrients and left us with only, what, something like 55 years left of healthy soil, which is a real problem, isn't it? Tell us about the, the impact that Rachel Carson had on you and how you first came across her. So... I, th- I think there was a sort of inherent nostalgia and romanticism in my own family about how things had been. So all the stories my dad and granddad told were about much more peopled fields, like hay times when there were 15 people in the field instead of three like there were when I was 15. And ha- like games of football in one of the fields between all the farm workers and stuff. There, there, was a, there was a world that had just disappeared or gone off screen that I was hearing about all the time. Um, so I... I, we did have in our family a sort of narrative that there'd been, some things had clearly been better in some ways in the past, and I, I was always aware of that. But I couldn't, I couldn't again, because I, I probably wasn't clever enough, to, to piece that together into some sort of coherent criticism and of what was happening. But when I read Rachel Carson, I, I got it for the first time. And it wasn't the anti-pesticide stuff, actually. It wasn't the anti-DDT thing, it was, which we're now think, we made her famous for. Um, it was that there's a bigger insight at the heart of that book, which is that progress can be profoundly wrong. Yes, <laughs> it, it can actually it can actually be built on foundations which are just based yeah. on the wrong assumptions. And and she was basically saying you can't you can't beat nature. You can beat nature for a little while, but nature's smart. Nature mutates. Nature works out how to de- defeat. So all you're left with is endless escalation, and. Ultimately, you won't win. There has to be another way, which is more biologically based. And I, I, knew for, I, I knew in my heart before I read Rachel Carson that that was probably true. And then when I read her, it was a complete affirmation for me. I was like, wow, she's, she, she, to use your words, she's completely nailed that. And I, I, can't, I can't move past that now. You can't that's, unknow that's that. I mean, the thing that you, you say that really grabbed you was that she said that the only species that can alter nature is man. Yeah, actually, even I think the quote's even more specific, isn't it? I think she said, in the current generation. So she's being really clear that there's a kind of threshold and, and, the, and the tools we'd got in the preceding 20 years, so from the 1940s to the 1960s, that's tipping us over a threshold that no yeah. one's ever experienced before, where we're, we're not just in it, we're not just in it, nature as an actor, we're going to absolutely dominate it. Only within the moment of time represented by the present century has one species man acquired significant power to alter the nature of his world if she'd written nothing else that's that is a such an important insight in the 1960s it only hits me in the 1990s probably when i read that book or whatever um it's and it's absolutely categorically true and yet even to this day our food and farming systems are not based on a true understanding of that we're still in denial about absolutely. it absolutely we're we're, prete- we're pretending that you can unleash all of these tools 
make food ever cheaper, ever more abundant, and that there isn't a cost. And, okay, lots of, lots of very fine environmentalist psychologists are, try, are shouting very loud that that's not true, but we haven't really internalised it or, or put that thought at the heart of our thinking about food and farming yeah, yet. Yeah, absolutely. When, when Henry Dumbleby does come knocking on your door, do you, do you have those kind of conversations? Is it about that craziness? It's, it's never been. Uh, I have had a, a few exchanges with Henry. I, I can only humbly apologise. I haven't even got around to reading the National Food Strategy yet. I've been too busy on the farm. And um, he did ask for my opinion on a draft of it. And I, I, as I understand it, he's quoted my book he in has it. But, a lot. Um, yeah. yeah. He uses yeah. your arguments that you make in your books. Um, we've lost our connection with, with the food from the land and we need to get it back. He talks about a fundamental change in the vision of our food culture. I think what you're really asking is what's it like what's it like to be part of this weirdness where people quote you and stuff like that do, do you want to know the absolute truth I don't think about it at all I don't think it's healthy to think about it it's it's very nice if I have an influence with my writing but I, I personally my, my, my life has not really prepared me for success I, I was more prepared for failure and, and actually I'm more comfortable just getting on with things whether it's my writing or my farming so I, I, I know I'm fortunate enough to have had a little bit of influence in various directions, but it's really not something I dwell on. I think my job is to write my next book or to look after my farm or my kids. Um, and that's just because I don't think it's healthy. Well, I... actually, you've done it. You, you, that's all right. You've written the books. All we need to do is read them. Everybody needs to read them. and then and But then know what to do. Let's talk about the people who probably are reading your books. The, and you give a wonderful example of a school teacher's wife um, who complained about your dad burning the gorse. Uh, she'd moved into the area. Uh, she was a, a good woman. She respected you and your family. But she was horrified at what your dad was doing, which is part of the cyclical nature of farming, which is burning the gorse. And she said, what's going to happen to the wildlife? She didn't understand. And it was really interesting when when I read that, I thought these are these two narratives. It's a real dichotomy between the middle classes who want you to farm traditionally, but they go to Waitrose. And you say the applause of the middle class doesn't make any difference when you're going off to the bank manager. It's got to, to have an impact. We all talk like that. All of the newspapers talk like that. The politicians even talk like that. Uh, I, I would argue that structurally we haven't changed the thing at all yet. We're still, still to all practical extents, uh, demanding through our food system that farmers produce more for less price next year than they did this year and not really tasking or supporting or regulating farmers to do the, the wider responsibility of looking after river, looking after... Now, uh, a critic of that point of view would say, hang on a minute, we've, we've got really strong environmental legislation in the UK, we've got subsidy systems, we're spending three billion a year on farming, why is that not enough? And th that stuff is there, and you can go and point to things that it's achieved, but there's a simple piece of maths in my mind, which is that the, uh, the British food system, or the sort of food and land-based system, is worth somewhere between 120 and 200 billion pounds a year, depending on how you add, add it up. Three billion pounds a year does not right all of the wrongs of 120 billion. If, so it's like a little toy train trying to pull a giant diesel engine. The diesel engine's making everything on farms in Britain worse at the moment. And then we're, we have this little toy train pulling the other way that we're very proud of and want to talk about all of the time. But really, it's, the pri it's, it's, the, it's what we pay for, what we legislate for, these really big fundamental shifts to make farming something else are not yet there. There's a lot of talk about them, but they're not yet there.
And and frankly, when Henry contacts me, I keep saying, I, I'm not playing ball, Henry. Like, you guys have to step up. You have to change things. And I'm going to be a grumpy asshole on the, on the, on the fringes of this. And I'm going to keep calling it because I don't care whether they like me. I don't care whether I'm famous or not or anything like that. If I think it's wrong, I'm going to keep saying so. And I think that's the job of a writer, isn't yeah. it? That's the job of a commentator. It absolutely is. You've practically done a lot of things on your own land to let your rivers flow in the way that uh, that has brought back wildlife to areas that were decimated. You're farming in a way that is supporting nature. You've taken a lot of advice from the people in suits who've, who've come in. You know, you're not farming like your granddad. Uh, you're farming in a different way with the spirit, perhaps, of your granddad. Can you really expect the farmers who are making money with their combine harvesters and their tractors and all the, the, the machinery that your grandfather hated because he said that it raised men above the land, it disconnected them from the land. Can you expect them to farm the way that you farm? No, and nor do I actually. I, 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 think, I think the actual solutions in our, individ- in our specific landscapes are very place specific. So I wouldn't expect a, a farmer in Cambridgeshire or Kent or Sussex to do exactly the things I'm doing. That because the base, the sort of baseline ecosystem that you'd want is different. They're in a river valley on deep soil. I'm up on a hillside. So you need different habitats, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I don't think in a country with tens and tens of millions of people, with growing population, that that we can somehow magically go back to some distant golden age in the past. What I do think we can do is that we can change our farming landscapes so that we can do an enormous amount of food production some of it some of which frankly will be quite intensive and industrial for want of a better word but i do believe we can still change that to be better i think we can do that with healthy soil i think we can build hedgerows woodland strips riparian corridors around that i think we can we can do that with far less chemicals we know we can um I think we can change... Actually, there's a fantastic book by Professor Tim Lang called Feeding Britain that talks about what we really need to eat and what we're actually good at producing. And we can produce a hell of a lot better vegetables and fruit in this country and things like that. Well, Tim Lang says that we should be vegan, though. Well, I don't think we should all be vegan, so I'll have to uh, beg to differ with Tim (laughs) on that, but I think he speaks a great deal of sense about some other things. There are no landscapes in Britain that can't be massively better, and I I can see that there's different ways that you do it in different places, But and I think it's starting to happen in in all of those landscapes as well. So we know that a lot of these practices we've been doing lead to the degradation of soil, the loss of fertility over time in soil, um, actually, slightly to contradict you, the funny thing about the intensive industrial agriculture at big scale is that almost nobody's making any money out of it except for the corporations. Right. The, the, giant co- the giant combine that looks like the farmer's rich is usually incurred half a million pounds worth of debt to, debt to buy it. So th- those farmers are often under massive, massive pressure, and that's, that's part of the reality. Yeah. But no, I, I, I think we can produce a huge amount of food and uh, in different ways in our landscapes and have much more nature and... Uh, I happen to do a grazing version of that in the uplands. So I'm influenced by people like Greg Judy in Missouri, who's worth a follow on YouTube. But there's some amazing farmers like Richard Perkins in Sweden, who's also on YouTube, showing how you can produce massive amounts of really healthy, good food on small farms, uh, a lot of amazing fruit and veg and all the rest of it. It can be done. There's absolutely no doubt in my mind that we can feed ourselves and look after our landscapes better. Yeah. Your final food moment is... A party, 
Uh, it's your father's friend's 70th birthday party and it's a whole load of old farmers gathered together talking about where you are now. And you do talk about politics. And one says, it's not fun anymore. It's not the inspiring world that your grandfather showed you. What do they think about what you're doing? Well, they, they love my first book because I stuck up for them in my first book, The Shepherd's Life. Uh, and the, I'll be honest with you, when I wrote the second book, I, I thought they might not like this. This might be too close to the bone. This may be too raw and maybe they won't like it. And I had moments of uh, cowardice where I thought of softening that. And then I thought, no, it has to be done. And that's my job. Uh, and actually I did it. And do you know, I can, I can hardly buy an argument with a farmer. I've got, even with my really intensive modern friends, I can't buy an argument on this stuff. They know, they know in the heart of hearts that they're in big trouble. Like if this keeps going down this road, if you look at, because we, we can look at other landscapes like the American Midwest and we know what happens to people like us. We know what happens to family farms. They're done. They're, ch- they're toast. And one thing about the people here, even those that have modernized, is that they have a really deep affection for place. They really think of themselves as rooted in these British landscapes. And the fear, that, the fear that they're in some sort of game where the rules are rigged against them and they're going to lose and they're going to lose everything they care about and their connection to their land and their community terrifies them. And, 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 the, and the saddest part of all this is that some of the most intensive industrial farmers, big ones, I, I know some of those people, they're like literally members of my family and things, they're, they live in fear, actually. They don't, they're not live, living as winners or feeling sort of boastful and proud they're actually terrified because when you're producing hundreds of thousands of eggs or thousands of pigs every week, there's only one buyer. There's only Waitrose. There's only El Tesco's. Um, and if you don't accept their price, even when it's less than the cost of production, you've got nowhere to go. You've, you can't take 5,000 pigs to a farmer's market and sell them at added value to people on the street. That's, you're bankrupt. And th- th- those really big farms, that's where it takes you. It takes you to a point where there's no... There's no agency, there's no autonomy. You really, sometimes years in advance, you know that at some point they'll change the price and you'll be able to do nothing about it and then you're probably gone. And yeah. that's, that's pretty ugly. That's a pretty ugly, a thankless place to be. And I try very hard when I'm talking about farming. Yes, I'm making some quite strong judgments about what I think farming should be, but I try never to be mean or lacking in empathy for those people because they're my people, you know, they're... They're the people I grew up among. Farmers aren't, um, particularly in the north, farmers aren't la- loud in their praise. But I get these really nice moments where a lot, many, many old farmers have sort of nudged me in the ribs when I'm at the, the sales or we're showing sheep and said things. Well, there's a guy called David Bland who's a great Lake District shepherd. And he, he nudged me one day and very quietly he said, if I could write a book, it'd be exactly the book that you've just written and I'm proud of you. Yeah. And, and you think... Hang on, that, that's better than a Sunday Times review, isn't it? <laughs> and, and I've had a lot of those moments, so I, th- I hope and I think, I, I think I'm right in saying, I think they're proud of me for, for trying to stick up for them. And I think they, if they were talking to you and I wasn't there, they might admit that some of it might make them feel a little bit uncomfortable, but they know that my heart's in the right place and I'm trying to bat for them. Yeah, absolutely. You finish on uh, a chapter called Utopia. 
and the book is a very beautiful read. Um, you know, it had me in tears plenty of times, but it's a very beautiful, lyrical love letter to the English landscape, isn't it? And that's what English pastoral is for you. And you end with this utopian picture. Um, it's about love and pride, isn't it? And it's about legacy, yeah. particularly for your children. But it's much bigger than that. Can you tell us a little bit about that vision? Yeah, so I... I kind of I kind of wrote the book against the backdrop of Brexit and all that sort of stuff, and I, like a, a time when our country's probably never been more divided and angry, and there's a million things to get across about all the other people, you know, the people over there about, and uh, so lots of people perhaps won't agree, but I happen to think we need to find common ground. We need to find some idealism, some some like progressivism that we can ally around, don't we? We need. I feel like I need that. If there's going to be a decent English pastoral in the future, then I feel like I need to talk to that other 99% of the population and I need to connect with their care and their sense of belonging in these landscapes and their care about feeding their families. And, yeah, I, as I say in the book, that it's not going to be a, a utopia in the perfect sense, but I think we can, we can all do way, way better than this. And that's... Yeah, and the, the, I think the lesson from our farm is... I've now got amazing friends who were originally people I would have had a row with on, on, on Twitter or social media. And I stopped doing it. I stopped doing it about six or seven, eight years ago. I started sending people private messages saying, should we have a walk and a cup of tea? And like, let's just, let's just talk this through, like sensibly. What you think, what I think, what we both want. Do you know what? Nearly every one of those conversations has ended in friendship and finding loads of common ground. I think... I think things like social media give the impression that we're just bickering on at each other all the time and nothing will ever change. But in the real world, I think things can and they will. And and whatever this slightly strange moment I'm in at the moment where people listen to me, I'm just going to keep saying that stuff and keep fighting for that. Thanks for listening. You can buy all the books featured on Cooking the Books by clicking on the bookshop tab at juliesmith.com. And while you're there, do sign up for the newsletter to keep up with all my news. Don't forget to rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts. And I'll see you next week when I'm back at the Abergavenny Food Festival in mid-September with FT restaurant critic and kitchen cabinet panellist Tim Haywood. Hold up. 